The views and opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or election inspectors. Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 17, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. My first guest today will be Norberto Santana, editor-in-chief of the nonprofit digital newsroom, Voice of OC. My second guest will be Diana Wyan, a Los Angeles-based director, choreographer, dramaturge, and curator, presenting next Saturday a virtual live performance of Blood Sugar. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Norberto Santana, the founding publisher and editor-in-chief of the nonprofit digital newsroom, Voice of OC. Over the last several years, Norberto has been recognized by the Orange County Press Club, the Los Angeles Press Club, the Los Angeles chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists, and the California Chicano News Media Association. Norberto also serves on the board of directors for the National Trade Group for Nonprofit Newsrooms, the Institute for Nonprofit News, investigative reporters and editors, and the California First Amendment Advocacy Group, CalAware. Norberto also teaches public affairs and investigative journalism at Chapman University. Before founding The Voice of OC, Norberto was a reporter for the Orange County Register. With his nearly two decades of focusing on local governments, Norberto has built a mantle of refined toughness, holding office holders and institutions accountable. He was an apprentice reporter with Congressional Quarter in Washington, D.C., covering daily floor action, the U.S. Congress followed that up with the stint covering the territorial Senate for the U.S. Virgin Islands Daily News. Norberto has a master's in Latin American studies and worked as an election analyst on national endowment for democracy programs across Latin America and was one of the founders of Cubanet.org. He comes to us today from his home in South Orange County. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Norberto Santana. Claudia, thank you for your work and, and nice intro. Appreciate it always. Well, thank you. So I want to geek out on a particular swath of Orange County's general election. I would say intriguingly, but it wasn't surprising that it was kind of the reverse. It was Orange County had a, a blue mirage and a red shift on election night. So I'm going to talk about specific areas, but I sure do wish I had Katie Porter's whiteboard right now so I could put down the map of that swath I'm thinking of. So, but did you notice though, or did you almost anticipate how it was going to be the opposite of what other parts of the country experienced? It was going to be a red mirage and then a blue shift, but we had the opposite. I do. I think in some ways, uh, for those of us that cover Orange County uh, politics and government on a regular basis, one of the things that's really unique about Orange County is we kind of coined this term a little bit or others have said it about it's a purple county. It's one of the most fascinating places in America because you have the two communities that are kind of at each other a bit right in front of each other. And if you look at election outcomes that between Democrat and Republican, they're ever so tight. So in some ways, 
I'm actually upbeat about it because I think in some ways it leaves us in a very even type of governing situation. If a Republican has won, there's a Democrat right close to them. The communities are equally separated between the two parties and in fact have a lot of independence as well. So I think in a lot of ways it bodes well for the future of Orange County that it's very difficult for this place to tilt one way or the other measurably. But the pandemic showed a glaring distinction from that, a contrast that take though, that we have a partisan majority that is not stepping up to the pandemic. The leadership locally has been wanting. So your great questions at the Orange County Board of Supervisors press conferences are calling that out. So I think the Board of Supervisors shows that it's deep red in terms of local leadership and the pandemic made that very clear. Fair point. As you said, the, the handling of this has not been great. I don't think at any level, I, you know, I, you know, I haven't seen a, a whole lot of political leadership stepping up and saying, you know, for the next nine months, we're going to have a different reality. As such, let's think about work differently. Let's think about housing differently. Let's deal with traffic. But I do think it's a fair point that the Orange County Board of Supervisors in many ways dug its feet in the ground in terms of the challenge that was in front of them. There has been a bit of a, as you said, a, a red tinge to that approach, it seems. But, you know, it's always difficult when you're going out beyond a governing dais to really get a sense of how deeply into the community are those elected officials grounded. I think one of the most troubling aspects of our modern day politics is that many of our elected officials are able to get elected without having a broad conversation with their constituents simply by adeptly using mail. In Orange County, I think it's particularly bad yes. because we don't have a strong broadcast. Yeah. It's a lighter environment from a media perspective. So many of these office holders are able to conduct a very one-sided conversation with their partisans. And I think that's what gives us a lot of a partisan outcome. The Board of Supervisors, I think sometimes, and this is where I think reporters have to do their job, there are many times, whether it's replacing a roof or redoing an engine on a car that the customer just doesn't want to hear how complicated, expensive this job's going to be. And I think that that's something that our elected officials across the board are not particularly well suited. I mean, I would say that, you know, Santa Ana has a democratic progressive majority. It's faced with some of the highest infection rates in the county. And it's not like the city has jumped out and done a, a bunch of different things. As you pointed out, the Board of Supervisors has been far behind the, the, the ball in terms of getting testing out, contract tracing, figuring out maybe different approaches for different sides of the county. There's definitely a difference between the center part of the county in terms of infection rates and what we're seeing in other parts of the county. I don't know what the specific approach there would be, but I think in anything, there's a lot of questions from the public about, shouldn't this be a little bit more tailored? And I do think they can do a better job of having more discussions, more forums. I think that's another thing that's fallen off completely out of our local politics, or even national in some ways, just that ability to have discussions and see what's out there, what best ideas sort of come to the fray. I think that's some ways the, the partisanship that we're seeing limits that a bit. Well, I can't leave it, your analogy alone, and, and I'll cap this discussion of the Board of Supervisors. We're going to talk about the automobile. I think the Board of Supervisors, they're dealing with the muffler while there's no brake fluid or transmission fluid left. That's, I think, with the pandemic. So I, I want to put down some districts. There's the California 48th Congressional District. There's the California State Senate 37th. There's the California 74th Assembly District. And so they overlap 
in some ways and the outcomes were very interesting. I thought, and I wanna dive rather deeply in there with you is that you can see where there was a voting block that delivered for the Republican challenger to the incumbent of the California 48th Congressional District. Michelle Steele was able to challenge incumbent Harley Ruda this round. And Dave Mann was able, the Democrat was able though in a smaller portion without that block, that voting block of what I would say are, were conservative Southeast Asians that are in the Northern portion of the 48th congressional district. And that there was the coastal pandemic denying constituency along the 48th that takes in part of the 37th Senate district and part of the 74th Senate district. But uh, we can see how the outcomes where the Democrat prevailed in the state Senate and the state assembly district, whereas in the larger district, the California congressional district, the 48th, the Republicans were able to prevail. Were you watching those constituencies play out in their, in that outcome? We have. I mean, I, I think that you adequately uh, described some of the, the, the dynamics that are here. The GOP, especially in Orange County, has made a, a big thing out of pursuing and, and engaging more in the Asian American community. Um, I think in some of these races, that may have played a factor. I think we all need to sort of take a look at some of the exit polling and some of the, the vote data that we can begin to ask ourselves these questions about you know, what really moved the ball here for Republicans. But I, I think, again, that voter registration tells a lot of this story is you have a very evenly, it's like all these races are in areas that are stocked on both sides. Like, for example, the 48th has an advantage, a natural advantage in Republican registration. So in some ways, you could say that was something that really the Democrats took in 18. But in reality, it's a natural, more Republican sort of coastal seat. There's, a, there's more Republicans there. So whenever you see that, it's almost like the Republicans should be winning that seat because it's really kind of speaks to uh, their constituency. You know, you might even argue to say it shouldn't have been that close, that given the way that that uh, district votes, that it shouldn't have been this tight. But I, I think that these tight elections are, in, in a lot of ways, part of our future. We're evenly matched in a lot of ways between Republicans and Democrats, diverse voters, more traditional voters. I think, if, if anything, it, it sets up a situation where, for politicians, it's going to be a much more complex environment to play in moving forward. So you talked a little bit without calling it a media desert, but if we had Michelle Steele engaging in, let's say, a local television news and, and Harley Ruda on there, do you think that might have moved the needle toward keeping the incumbent in office? If people could see the kind of the quick study, the kind of content policy engaged uh, Harley Ruda versus Michelle Steele, and I'm, I'm going to call it, I find it very difficult for her just to master reading copy at the beginning of a press conference and not even appearing for, for questions from the press after her reading copy. So that would, would we benefit with a local audiovisual media that the public would share, like in the old days with three classic TV stations, would we be able to sort of get a side-by-side -side of what the profiles are of these two candidates in the Congressional 48th race? I would agree with you 100%. Absolutely. I think that face-to-face -face debates should be an absolute you know, necessity. Uh, Did you invite you them? 
Because you did some forums. We did. The primary. Yeah, we did. yeah, no, there wasn't. And what any did they say? They weren't interested. I think that in a lot of ways, the challenge is that these days people do the polling. And if you're ahead, you don't debate. And if you're behind, you try to debate. And again, much like much of our politics, it's turned into this entertainment show. That's to me the biggest problem in our politics is that we have a media establishment that largely approaches politics as an entertainment story. Uh, this was something back during the Fairness Doctrine before the Reagan yes. administration, yes. that there was a seriousness to news, a balance that was required. Now, look, I'm not a big fan of government mandates either way. H however, you see the impact here is that people avoid these debates. I've never seen Harley Ruda himself, you know, sitting in a, in, a, in a straight session, ask a question and see what he answers. I think that, frankly, many of our politicians are accustomed to these very manicured, limited appearances. And we're seeing this everywhere. I think it's, it's the most dangerous dynamic in our democracy that many of our elected officials will not sit down and have an open discussion with their constituents. That to me is, is one of the most sort of saddest trends that I've seen out there because people do have a right to see when you ask a simple question, how do you answer that without notes, without anything of just what is in your face, what is in your heart? And I think, frankly, that's why a lot of, you know, officials don't want to, you know, do that. I mean, think back to 1960 with the, uh, <laughs> you know, Nixon and Kennedy. One person goes on TV and looks very good, Kennedy, and does well. Uh, another person, Richard Nixon, comes on, has a five o'clock shadow, is sweaty, is, you know, is not comfortable in front of that camera. And, you know, that election goes to the person that that did better on TV by a And that was close. Right. Yeah, by, a, by a liver. So it by makes a county. A yeah, it makes a it makes a difference. And I think that's why in this modern era, we've gotten to such manicured media appearances. And it's a huge challenge. You mentioned earlier at the Board of Supervisors when we have these coronavirus press conferences. I mean, reporters are limited to one question with no ability to do any kind of follow up of any sort. And well, it was no sound quality either. I mean, there's like every kind of stumbling block there. So it's a correct. miracle that there is there are articles that the Voice of OC can publish after those forums. It's a they're miracle. Very, they're very challenging. And again, that's a $300 million government building that they built with no media center, with no adequate internet inside of it, with no equipment to do any kind of press conferences. I mean, that certainly tells you a lot about at least what the hopes and aspirations of our new political classes, which is to engage as little as possible and only do so through, through one-way mail campaigns. And again, that's only possible because of the dearth of media in Orange County. And I fear this uh, trend is also seen in other communities throughout our state. It's why I think so many people get frustrated by politics and why so independent, the rise of the independence, because I think a lot of people now with alternative information are looking at even what the media is offering them and asking some critical questions that frankly are probably long overdue about how stories get put together, who's getting quoted, where are the, the news agencies in terms of these news deserts or jumping into the trenches, where are they? Right. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Norberto Santana. He's the founding publisher and he's the editor-in-chief of the digital newspaper, The Voice of OC. And we're doing a deep dive in what it's kind of the swath, but we're still we're taking in all the board of supervisors too in the process here. So I don't know if you have more to add to that before we go on to what you, I mean, there are candidates now that are starting to line up or starting to sort of hedge their bets with the special election to fill county board of supervisor district two Michelle Steele's seat. 
Correct. Uh, you'll start to see now during these elections. Now we're starting to see more and more special elections. And it's it's almost like finishing a marathon and then being told you got to run another 10 miles. We see here with County Supervisor Michelle Steele getting elected to Congress. It leaves an opening now in the coastal second district for the supervisors. At the same time, you see John Morlock, a state senator who was a county supervisor before, loses his race to uh, Dave Minna, a professor over at UCI. Right. Uh, yeah. And the second that he sees that that's gone, people start calling him up and saying, in a short compressed race, somebody with a long standing name ID in Orange County should have a pretty good chance of doing well. Ironically, we may see a, a, a rematch, you know, at the state Senate level, uh, Costa Mesa mayor Katrina Foley was getting ready and gearing up to run against Morlock. She lost the primary to Dave Min, thanks to a lot of Uber and Lyft money that went in this sort of like a, a statewide debate played itself out in this race. And then when we saw the general election, we saw the prison guard union go after Morlock uh, because of his uh, work on pensions at the state level. Ultimately, Dave Min wins and Morlock within probably five minutes of losing is one door is closing and another one is opening over to the supervisor's seat. There are a few uh, uh, Huntington Beach council members that have talked about running uh, along with pretty sure uh, uh, Newport Beach Mayor uh, Will O'Neill has also announced interest at least in looking at it. So it'll be interesting. Nonetheless, in a short compressed race, it'll, it'll go towards candidates that have a healthy campaign war chest, healthy donors and good name ID. So it'll be interesting these next couple of weeks to see which way that starts to shape, but you'll likely see an election, a special election in March. So you'll probably have January and February to campaign, and then you'll go to that election. And it'll either create a 3-2 majority if the Democrat were to win on the Board of Supervisors. And some would say that that might bring some more balance to that board in general, or you could continue with the 4-1 supermajority that you've had up until now. That again, for some people, like the way it's uh, it turns out, and for uh, for other interests, there's serious concerns about again the lack of pushback, the lack of a debate, the lack of varying opinions on that board. Lots to say there, but I'm I'm going to set aside. But I do want to just tag for listeners that the importance of the composition of the county board of supervisors in this term is that they're going to be drawing up the new district maps this next session. So it's, and that, they matter, they matter wh where we all are. Big so stakes. let's, let's talk big. about, yeah, big stakes. Let's talk about now the Irvine City Council. I don't know if you saw it settling out that way. I was kind of surprised that Christina Shea did as badly as she did holding her mayoral seat there. I, I conceded from the election in 2012 forward, there's gonna be so much dark money. The city of Irvine was never gonna look democratic with a little D again. Irvine was surprising, as you said, it's stunning to see an incumbent mayor with several decades in office lose by a large swath. I think it was about 12 percentage points that Councilwoman Farrah Khan uh, beat Christina Shea on. I do think it says something about the changing diversity of Irvine. Irvine's a very diverse city. I mean, I think it's probably one of the most diverse cities in America uh, in terms of just how many different ethnicities make up the city. So I think that in one case is an indication of Irvine changing. The special interest money in places like Irvine, Anaheim is a lot. And as you said, I think it does raise some questions about small D democracy of whether large interests are able to flood. I mean, again, it gets back to civic connectivity, which we are losing more and more and more. It's like an endangered plant. The less 
that uh, voters, residents have an ability to find independent information, news, the more that they are captive to special interests because they are able to send them very powerful messages one way. What I was stunned at in Irvine was that it seemed to be a turnout of developer-friendly council to one more of candidates that had expressed concerns over traffic, uh, congestion in Irvine, questions about how that community is growing. And again, for many people that are there saying, wait a minute, where are all these large apartment buildings and everything come from? It's kind of like you haven't been at your city council meeting. All of these things have been approved little by little. It's like boiling a frog. Little by little, you became a big, huge city, not the sleepy suburb of the 1970s. And that is, I think, in some ways, the tale of Irvine moving forward. How does it deal with that? How does it maintain the quality of life of a small town, suburban area from the 1970s, while at the same time building up for, you know, bigger housing, more commercial, more developments? Uh, and you see a little bit, and we saw it in this election, probably in the last two or three elections, we've seen this, this pattern play out. And again, despite the massive investment of the Irvine company in that election, you saw almost all of uh, the candidates that were developer tied lose. Norberto, you're missing one big piece. The Shoot. engaged young voters that masked up since Memorial Day weekend and rallied and they were holding banners up and down Culver and Jamboree and the Barranca Parkway, Black Lives Matter and all, and resigned. They wanted the mayor to resign. Like <laughs> they were gonna ask her and she's gonna resign. And, and they got a huge civic lesson in all those rallies that you vote a mayor out. And there were students that needed to break leases on and off of campus. So there, there was now skin in the game for a whole electorate that never participated before. I think that could have easily mattered in a municipal election. I think it's a great point. And I, I've heard about, again about some of it is UCI, that factor there where you're getting a lot of these young people involved and active uh, and they're making a difference. That's clear. I mean, I think that Katie Porter's win from a few years back clearly showed that. And, and you see again, uh, one, you know, handily in that area again. So that youth mobilization, I mean, that's the key of democracy. The more people mobilize, the more you have an impact. It's that simple in some ways. So when do you think we're going to see district elections with the Irvine City Council? I don't know. That's a great question. Each city kind of is going down that road on their own. I know that, you know, Santa Ana officials fought that forever and a day. Anaheim officials have fought that. Costa Mesa recently uh, put it in. Recently, there's been a, a lawsuits that have gone over in different cities and have really required that, almost saying if you don't do it, you're disenfranchising uh, voters. I do think, for example, some of the reporting that we've done in Irvine around the Great Park and mm -hmm. the lack of involvement of those neighbors in the massive iconic public works project that is being built with their mellow roost taxes, I think is in some ways woken people up there to that you do have specific interests of neighborhoods that it, it, it's good to have somebody that's got to go to that same market as you do to go vote on something and then have to go, you know, in a sense, deal with their neighbors directly. So I think that as that tendency continues to go, Irvine, like most larger places, will inevitably be confronted by that district question. I guess all it takes is somebody to challenge that representation issue and you're on your way. Because I think Irvine Ranch Water District, this was the first year that there were district special seats for the district water board. I think you're right. I think that it is in large part a matter of people challenging it. 
It's one of these things of as the city gets my di more diverse, if the governing dais reflects the community, the pressure is in a sense off. But if it does not, it puts it right back on. At the same time, there are just legal realities that if you have an at-large system that consistently does not allow everybody in the city to have a fair shake at competing for office, you know, that's been found to be a, a violation of the Voting Rights Act. Now, that in and of itself has a lot of people across California concerned and questioning the Voting Rights Act. Like, is that a proper adaption of the Voting Rights Act? But city after city that has been presented with a legal challenge has pretty much, I think with Mission Viejo being the exception, okay. adopted district elections because yeah. they can't win. They, you know, if you get challenged on it, and the, and the demographics are there to back up a lawsuit. It's a pretty straightforward. In most cases, the cases have been settled. Right. It's inevitable. That's It's sort of like the, the first of the pathway that's, it, that makes, it reaches completion. Well, let's make for our last segment's interview rapidly here. But I, I want to give you a chance to, to accept my gratitude for what the voice of OC has been able to do in our otherwise our media desert, you've made news developments interesting and understandable in the way you're rendering the service to all of us. I am always directing people to look at your coverage, meaning all of your reporters, and you keep adding some. So are, are you seeing subscriptions increasing to keep supporting new and more reporters at the Voice of OC? Absolutely. The uh, the reaction from the public has been overwhelming. Uh, I think, as you said, I think that there's real value in just straight up local reporting. It doesn't necessarily go down partisan avenues, but concentrates on what we call quality of life issues, you know, traffic, housing, homelessness, electricity, toxics, open space, just really the fundamentals that you need to be to live and have a good quality of life. Our fundamental belief is that journalists don't do this. Residents do it. But residents need to be armed with real-time, real information to be able to, in a sense, ask their elected officials or hold them accountable in a really meaningful way. It's incredibly uh, heartening. Our readership, especially this year, has blown to almost just over a million readers on a monthly okay. basis. Where, And the donors, too. I mean, on a daily basis, we're getting donors. The best part about it is that we're getting $5 a month, $10 a month, $25 a month. Some join our ambassadors uh, group, which is $1,000 a year. And those larger donors know that they're just helping maintain, you know, news about Irvine, Anaheim, Santa Ana. I mean, in our model, we've concentrated on some of the biggest cities in the county, hoping to kind of move that out. We have a great partnership with Chapman University, which is putting a lot of students in the field into smaller city halls so that places like Placentia, uh, San Juan Capistrano, uh, some of the small Stanton, that they can get that kind of coverage that we're able to do out in the larger city. So the amount of donors has gone through the roof. I think we're almost at about 2000 donors now. Uh, and again, okay. really, you know, everything from five bucks to, to, you know, 50 bucks a month. I think if anything, it's showing us the way forward. I certainly have a strong belief in, in nonprofit news where all of the money from the donors goes into, and as you said, correctly. We've been able to expand the newsroom. We've been able to do more with photography. We've added some reporters. We've had an intern program and all of the donations, all everything we get goes right back into the newsroom. It's not a, a typical for-profit situation where you've got, you know, large bonuses at the top, uh, in some <laughs> cases, you know, very top heavy administrative environments with editors and deputy editors and managing editors. And, you know, a lot of that aspect, we've tried to keep things very lean and really stay focused on quality of life 
as opposed to entertainment issues. And I think that the readership, the explosion in readership shows that it's that it, I think it works and that people see it and that they're able to rely on it. Plus, too, we, we source a lot. We put a lot of documents into the stories and we get a lot of feedback from people that they like that they're able to read a lead and then they're able to read the document and then they can make a decision for themselves whether that reporter can be trusted in the way that they're describing stuff. So a lot of national newspapers, their success in the last four years plus have been attributed to the national leadership and a lot of national drama. But what's the graph looking like for the Voice of OC's subscription and donor pickup and readership pickup? It's been a consistent growth. We avoid this, as you said, we avoid this partisan, this entertainment debate. I, that's, to me, the biggest troubling thing is that many of our news agencies have taken politics as a great entertainment vehicle. And, it, and the problem is, is that because many of these papers are based around advertising bases, they need to gather large page views. Well, when you're forced into that situation, you're typically going to get somebody from the far right and the far left and have them scream at each other for a half an hour and try to create, you know, that kind of YouTube moment. Our model from day one has been very different. And the idea being is that we're here for engagement. We're here to get deeper into communities and allow people to have deeper conversations, again, about things like traffic and air and water and the beaches and everything around them. And I well, think- I want, Yes, I, but I want to give you credit though for there's institutions that you're holding accountable. I don't think I'd know about where a city manager resignation or other um, appointments where the smell is not, it's, the whiff isn't very, is off. And you're, you're sort of watching the outcome of those personnel changes and what that means for the distribution of funds, whether it's the local revenue or there's pass-through money from rescue legislation packages from the national level. So it's a different aspect that I want to let listeners know is another factor of the coverage from the Voice of OC, that in, holding institutions just personnel issue, holding people accountable. Uh, totally. You're 100% right. And it's, I think to me, it's, we're trying to inform people about, like you said, what is happening in your cities and little things about who's in charge of community development, what happened with the city manager. You know, the, the, the problem is that your city halls, like car engines, they're a lot dirtier and a lot complicated than people want to know. And so it takes a lot of time. If anything, I think that what you're mentioning is that we've had a lot of beat coverage. You know, we Lots. cover... Yeah, we cover a lot of these cities and we cover the incremental plus two on a, on a weekly basis. We're trying on our Monday and Tuesday to tell readers about what's going to happen that night at their city council. Get you that information ahead of time so that, again, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and I, I have to say quite proudly that we have you know, a good involvement from both sides of the aisle. I mean, Republicans, Democrats, men, women, people of color, Anglos. I'm really proud at how diverse our newsroom has been because I think, again, if you deliver that kind of product where everybody can pick at it and take out of it from what they need, the problem with much of our, our national coverage, it's got you focused on D.C., and the reality of it is that your local mayor and your local board of supervisors has much more of an impact on your direct quality of life than D.C., which is in, unfortunately in many ways turned into a kind of a freakish entertainment show. Beyond freakish. Well, I want to applaud all of your efforts, and I hope that another factor in the what the voice of OC brings to Orange County is that it will improve down ballot participation. I brought that up over and over with every single candidate that I'd covered since September this year in this election cycle. And so I hope that the voice of OC prosperity will be maintained 
beyond the sort of, we know where some of this national press is gonna be going when perhaps some of the drama might pare down. So Norberto Santana, I really thank you for taking the time today to be on Ask a Leader. Thank you for your work, Claudia. It's super important and I really appreciate it and I'm very honored to be here with you. Oh, well, thank you. My guest was Norberto Santana, the founding publisher and the editor-in-chief of what I would call the essential voice of OC. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Diana Wyan, a Los Angeles director choreographer presenting her one-woman show, Blood Sugar, next Saturday. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Diana Wyan, a Los Angeles-based director, choreographer, dramaturg, and curator of contemporary performance, bringing to us a virtual live performance of Blood Sugar this Saturday evening, November 21st at 7 o'clock at Caltech Live. Diana's collaborations include those with Lincoln Center, the LA Philharmonic, Center Theater Group, Red Cat, and Grand Performances. Diana is the co-founder of Plain Wood Productions with her husband, Laban, a former pro skateboarder turned music video director. Diana serves as artistic director of arts and culture at Temple Israel of Hollywood. Diana's recent return to the stage is her creation and performance of Blood Sugar, the subject of today's interview. While on national tour, her production has won outstanding performance of a solo performance and outstanding playwright of a solo performance at the 2018 Planet Connections Theater Festivity, as well as the Planet Activist Award. Diana completed her Bachelor's of Fine Arts in Drama from New York University, she comes to us today from her home in Los Angeles. Welcome to Ask a Leader and welcome to a spoiler-free time, Diana Wyan. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you. Well, first, congratulations in your work of art and science. But first, I must check in. How are you feeling right now, Diana? Right now, I'm feeling good. It's an interesting time with everything that's going on. There's many layers and much complexity, but I am safe and well here in my house in Echo Park. Okay, good to hear. Well, why don't you please walk us through how you're struggling through this insidious deepening of your own diabetes. It's a type one diabetes we learned from your production. How did it ultimately lead you, Diana, to rendering this experience of yours theatrically? Well, uh, that's a great question. Um, so I will do one spoiler. Uh, you learn in the show, like you said, that I'm type one, but you also learn that I get diagnosed in London. Um, I was 20 years old studying abroad at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. It was amazing and simultaneously had no idea that I was on the verge of falling into a coma because of my type one diabetes. So once I got diagnosed, I immediately started taking insulin um, with the doctor's help and found my way back to Los Angeles and when I was here, 
I didn't tell anybody that I had diabetes because there was this stigma that I felt um, around the disease about what diabetes looked like. And I didn't want to be judged. And now I realize that that was uh, unnecessary because, you know, this disease doesn't prevent me from doing anything that I want to do. I just have to make adaptations. So I hid this disease for something like eight years. And wow. after finally talking about it and being a bit more public with it and getting more comfortable, my life got better. And then I watched all these other solo performers that I was directing and helping dramaturg their work and tell their stories. And I went, you know what? There's a story here, especially since there's so much misunderstanding around this disease. And there are things like, you know, people still believe that diabetes is caused by sugar, but it's not. And I felt like I could get that message out there through theatrical storytelling and, and find this kind of hybrid way of providing a lot of educational information about the disease, but also sharing the journey and sharing some of the epiphanies that living with this chronic illness, this invisible disability has given to me. So in 2017, I read a statistic that said that one in 10 US adults has diabetes today and that by 2050, as many as one in three could have this disease. That was coming out of the CDC. And that statistic broke my heart because it's very difficult to live with this um, disease. You know, it, clearly many of us are living with it and a lot of us are thriving with it. But 90% of cases are reversible um, or preventable up until a point. And I want that information out there. Type 1 currently is not curable, um, but prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, there are things that you can do. And so I wanted to get that message out there. And I felt like theater was the medium. And so that set me off on my course of creating blood sugar. And you present a kind of format of facts and then lies. And when and you just raised the bit about that sugar doesn't cause it, but highly processed food, high carb, high sugar foods do exacerbate the problem. Yes. Yes. So And that's a kind of a fine that's just kind of a nuance though that doesn't get enumerated that way in the fact and lie two different sections. Correct. It usually just boils down to that false claim that sugar causes diabetes instead of recognizing that saturated fat, excessive amounts of saturated fat in your diet, which are predominantly found in meat and dairy, cause insulin resistance in your body. And that insulin resistance makes it hard for insulin to work properly and knock on the door of your cells and say, hey, open up and take this sugar inside. So yes, like if you eat a high sugar foods, and you have an environment in which you have made insulin resistance happen, that's when things get dicey. And um, that's where we actually have a lot more control over our insulin resistance and our insulin sensitivity than we think. And it really does boil down to what we eat. The other thing to note is there are so many different causes for different forms of diabetes. So it usually isn't just one thing but it can be many, many things working together. And I, I raise that exacerbating one's health problems because I see with food insecurity and I see as a sort of export of highly processed foods all around the world, that that's why I think what you're talking about in 2050, we're going to see an incidence of one in three being a problem where diabetes will be present that we're exporting a problem and we're seeing as more and more people are arriving 
where they're coming from food insecurity in other parts of the world, or it's creeping, it's a creeping kind of a, a food constituent of a diet that it has me always, it, it rattles my cage every time I'm reminded of that with coverage of people moving around. Yes, definitely. It's a really complicated issue because you want to have, I mean, we all need to eat, you know, and there's certain cultural identities that are wrapped up so significantly in what we eat. And as we export the Western diet and people get sicker, I think a lot of people are waking up and potentially returning to a more plant-based diet as a way to kind of heal our bodies because the diet that we have today is not the diet that we've always had. This has come about in the past couple decades. Our, our access, I mean, my grandparents didn't eat that much meat and dairy when they were growing up, but you know, I was told every single meal. So I wanna give you kudos for a very deft hand you have at bringing visually in the side effects, the complications of diabetes, your graphic, and you remain appropriate with that. There's no gratuitous kinds of, of visuals there. Well done. How, how did you Thank decide you. to walk, but not walk over the line? Yeah, I, I really appreciate you noticing that because it was really important to me that I research this and present a very honest personal take on diabetes, my experience living with it, as well as like the statistics and um, the facts about the science and make sure that it was always, you know, I'm not trying to scare people um, with some of these statistics, even though they can be incredibly overwhelming. What I think is possible by sharing the work in this theatrical setting is that um, I can dispel those lies and kind of arm you with the knowledge that you can make choices for yourself. And so it was really important to me that I also not pull any punches um, because this disease truly is fatal. And the decisions that I'm making on a daily basis are going to impact what the end of my life will look like. But that's true of anybody. I mean, I'm not unique in that my choices today impact my blood sugar, everyone, is to a certain degree. It's just that my pancreas has kind of kicked the bucket, whereas uh, most people's pancreases are still checking their blood sugar every seven seconds versus me who checks it with a meter five times a day. So here's this is, gives the listeners an idea of how precise, how nimble you are with moving in and out of presenting these ideas. So I, and I want to say though, your own vigorous and vital self are a demonstration that it can be managed. So you're not scaring people away. You're sort of, your very presence is a reassurance that it can be managed and be aware, be armed with the facts. And someone too can comport with the same vivaciousness and you know, that you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Well, so I always ask this question because I keep getting really answers I don't always expect is, what is the audience that you're trying to reach, Diana, or the audiences? Oh, so, yes. Yeah, so that question, the answer to that question has evolved a lot because when I set out, I was like, diabetes is so misunderstood. From the beginning, this disease has been called, quote unquote, mysterious. And I'm talking about the beginning being 1552 BC in ancient Egypt. And so 
I found that I wanted to share this work with people who didn't have the disease so that they could gain knowledge and then support those in their lives that do have the disease, whether they have prediabetes or type two or type one or gestational or nascent, like there's a, there's many, many, many types. Right. And over the course of building it, because that still is a big segment of the, the audience for this work, but over the course of building it, I got to meet other type one diabetics like myself and other type two diabetics also and pre-diabetics and people started sharing with me their own personal experiences. And I realized, oh, this work is for them too, because them sharing their reflections after watching my story on stage made me feel so much less alone in this. And when I was diagnosed at 20, I didn't have any resources. Not only was I in England at the time, 6,000 miles away from my family, I also, because of my age, had aged out of the care provided to those getting diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which- Oh, really? Called, yeah, they used to be called juvenile diabetes, but they can't call it that because people in their 20s like me get it. People in their 50s and their 40s also get this disease. There's a rise in type 1 cases as well, which I get into a little bit in the show. But usually when you get diagnosed as a type 1 as a child, there are a tremendous amount of resources available and community groups and summer camps like built specifically for these children to kind of figure out life living with this chronic illness. And I didn't have any of that. And I also, because of the shame that I had for, you know, that's just the truth. And and if anything, I'm hoping to dispel that shame through this show and speak up and raise my hand and say, this is also what diabetes looks like. I find that creating of the show put me in community, put me in dialogue with other people with the disease. Mm -hmm. And that has been tremendously healing personally, as much as then they are telling me also that they're appreciating it. Um, and it's helping them. I mean, one individual came to see the show. They had type two diabetes. They let me know that their doctor had given them a meter, but then like sent them home and they had never used that meter in the past three years. And so oh. I offered to show them how to use it. And so I tested my blood sugar on my meter and they tested their blood sugar on their meter for the first time since their diagnosis many years prior. And that person wrote me three months later and said, I'm now pre-diabetic because they all of a sudden were armed with the information on how to check their yes. own blood sugar and the information in the show. They then put that into action and were able to bring back the severity of the diabetes that they were experiencing. Well, for those of you yeah. who've just joined us, my guest is Diana Wyan, a Los Angeles-based director, choreographer, dramaturge, and curator of contemporary performance, bringing to us a virtual live performance with a lobby interaction afterward. The play is called Blood Sugar. It's this Saturday, November 21st at 7 p.m. at Caltech Live. And Blood Sugar, as you're hearing, is an autobiographical solo performance. So I wanted to also give you kudos for the ingenuity in producing this. I've been able to see sort of like the earliest forms of Zoom plays and they're, they're all, everybody's making the most of it, but they're sort of evolving and they're getting a little more complicated, but the ingenuity is the, through line with all this and you transform your personal space into a very effective dramatic platform and i've got to call out you directed your partners several pregnant pauses 
that give us the equivalent of a page long soliloquy by his silence. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. His silence haunts me too. Um, but I thought it was really necessary to be honest in that moment. Uh, I guess the audience, you'll, you'll find out what those moments are when you come and see it, but I have to give a shout out because as much as it is a solo performance, like it takes a village, it takes a village yes. to create a work of theater. And so I, I want to give props to my entire team who was with me, even for the stage production that then got adapted into this one for our home. And it's interesting because my partner actually started out as a voiceover in the original in dialogue with me. Mm -hmm. And then quickly became the man at four computers off to the side, handling all the sound and video cues. And then for this iteration, I have Jason H. Thompson as the video designer. Mm -hmm. He's downtown triggering all those effects. So that freed up Laban. And so Laban's with me, helping with camera, helping set up certain things in the background. So it looks absolutely seamless. And he's also, as you noted, appearing on camera. And I think that was a really important thing to find that because from the beginning, I wanted to show how it takes a village to manage this disease. It's just, it's not just me, it's not just me and my doctor, but that village includes my husband, it includes my family as a support system, it includes my acupuncturist, like all these different things support me being able to live and thrive with this chronic illness. Well, you had to tinker with the kind of pedagogy to create this production so how did you know how to convey this material? It's not entertainment. It, it is a performance educational piece. I don't feel entertained. I feel there's a lot of amazing effects, but what kind of pedagogy informed you to produce this? Well, there's a lot to unpack there because I recently, through the course of doing this work, realized how much of my own practice as a theater and opera director, especially as a theater director, because that's my primary focus. Mm -hmm. I only perform in this show because it's my story and I think it's really important that you hear it from me. But in my work as a director, I'm working a lot at the intersection of public health and performance. And whether that's the health of our democracy through Christina Wong for public office, or sharing the story of a three-time stroke survivor through a lesson in swimming, I just am really excited about us sharing our own stories about what we need to heal and what we need to maintain and create healthy systems and communities. So I actually, heard about a production from a college professor, Awam Ampka, let me know in college about a production. I believe it was in Nigeria. He was teaching us about contemporary African performance. And there was this theater troupe that built a show about leprosy because it is treatable and curable. And they would load up into a caravan and they would travel to these remote communities and then share the show. And because these communities don't have access readily available to them for doctors, they brought with them doctors. So it was actors and doctors. And as soon as the performance was over, the community was able to ask questions like, is this marking on my arm something I should be concerned about? And they could treat them right there. Oh, and wow. 
Yeah, I thought it was the most amazing use of performance. And I was like, that, that is what I want to do. How do I bring that to the United States? And then I found myself six months later, you know, two weeks away from a coma and every bit of planning I had put into place evaporated and I came home to Los Angeles. But as I stood on stage delivering the first workshop production of Blood Sugar, I realized, oh my gosh, diabetes is that treatable disease that we don't know enough about. And if I bring nutritionists and I bring diabetes educators to the stage with me, we can have a really deep dialogue because I use the show to kind of share basically all the knowledge I've amassed and the experiences I've amassed for the past 15 years distilled into one hour. And I find that that then leaves people with lots of feelings and questions. And I'm not a medical professional, so I bring medical professionals because I'll share my lived experience and and, and what I found to be true for me and recommend experimenting or doing more research for yourself, then they come in and uh, and we have this incredible public forum about our health. And so often we are with our doctors alone talking about these things in abstract. And doctors might have 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, but they've got lots of patients and can't spend as much time as these diseases really demand. And so I find that this is an incredible way to gather in public and have an honest, open dialogue about our bodies and our health and support each other. And it's very accessible, and I can put a really huge premium on accessibility in conveying this kind of a essential message. As I've witnessed now so many Zooms from epidemiologists and other researchers that are trying to explain their work or their take on the pandemic currently, and some of them, they haven't even thought about being accessible or interesting and that kind of thing. So this pedagogy and your accessible approach just makes you super, super effective. So it's a big public health bonus that you bring here. So one thing I, I wanted to know how you felt when we have in California, the, in this last general election, we had a Proposition 14 that was going to extend a bond for stem cell research. So it's there's the priorities and the resources that are made available for different kinds of diseases. And now, as you mentioned in the play, that diabetes has been identified as a particular syndrome for about 100 years. So how do you feel about the stem cell research gets another go with state bond funding? And you're wondering, so uh, hello over here. <laughs> when, when do we get our little lunar shot, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, Robert Klein had so much clout and he was successful in pulling off another bond. But how do you feel as a person who's trying to advance the treatment and the cure for diabetes? Well, there's two things that, um, well, I think it's great that the voters in this state have prioritized continued research in area. I think that we're on the verge of breakthroughs that can help a number of medical illnesses and conditions, and, and I'm excited about those breakthroughs. One of the reasons why I made this show is 90% of cases can be impacted by lifestyle changes, right? You always mm -hmm. hear that, right? Diet, exercise, but truly like, what does that really mean and how does that work? Because those things are true, but that's a simplification. And just eating low carbs is not the answer. It's actually, I eat a high carb, low fat, plant-based diet. 
And that makes me incredibly insulin sensitive and has helped me manage this disease. And none of that costs lots of money. My grocery bills went down when I started eating vegan and I started eating plant-based. I actually saved a lot of money and I didn't have to give money to some of the pharmaceutical companies for some of these drugs. I do use insulin and the cost of that is skyrocketing. Luckily, I have insurance thanks to the Affordable Care Act. It's very expensive for me to get insurance, but I have it. Uh, in the show, I, I reveal how much it does cost. And I, I basically, if nothing goes wrong, I spend $8,000 a year just to stay alive. But a huge part of my treatment and the treatment for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes is is food, is what you eat, is, is dropping the amount of saturated fat in your diet and letting your body systems recalibrate and rebalance. So I'm all for the investigations of stem cell research and the advances that they're doing around artificial pancreases. I think that's all really exciting, but there's something we can do now and it's not very expensive. <laughs> it just has to do with really paying attention to what we eat and making those choices on a daily basis. And you mentioned about your intersectional approach and you do tie up so many themes by the end. This is not a spoiler, it's just that people, they should take copious notes throughout the play. I took them, so you too can't, <laughs> listeners. And so it leads everybody up to like the big prizes of what they can save at the end. So I really appreciate how very ambitious you are in picking up all the themes and collecting the increasingly broader themes for how we can all be better dwellers of the planet. So this is an opportunity for you to tell patrons how they can take in the performance and join you in the virtual lobby afterward. Great. So I hope that you will join us on Saturday, November 21st at 7 p.m. That's Pacific Standard Time. If you head to events.caltech.edu, you'll find tickets right there. And if you buy one ticket, that gives your whole household access to the production in case you're living with other folks. And yeah, that's the key way to get there. It's being presented by Caltech Live on November 21st at 7 p.m. And I cannot wait to share this with you. Indeed, it's quite remarkable. So I'm personally acquainted with the cultural empresario, Michael Alexander. He's at Caltech and he's always been about creating ways for people to gather. So he's somebody you've worked with already at Grand Performances. So your connection with him is probably the big reason why you have this platform, no? Yes, definitely. We've known each other for a couple years. He's seen a couple of my projects and I, of course, invited him to see the staged version of this one. And he immediately was like, all right, let's talk about bringing this to Caltech. So I have so much gratitude for him seeing the potential in this work and for sharing it in the virtual space. Well, good luck on your show on the 21st of November and good luck on in the lobby experience. And Diana, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for getting this out there. I cannot wait to share it with your audience. My guest was Diana Wyan, a Los Angeles-based director, choreographer, dramaturg, and curator of contemporary performances, bringing to us a virtual live performance of Blood Sugar. 
Saturday, November 21st, 7 p.m. Blood Sugar is an autobiographical solo performance illuminating and embodying the global diabetes epidemic. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, it's my way of doing Thanksgiving. Rebecca Robles and other Native peoples will be talking about sacred lands in our backyard. Next on these airwaves is SoCal New Waiver with Pass Forward. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. And join me in masking up. 